Welcome back to the TEFL Training Institute podcast, everyone. I'm Ross Thorburn, and this week, my guest Matt Courtois and I are talking about how to include movement in language lessons. We'll mainly be talking about young learners, but we'll mention some older students as well. And you hear us talk about why movement's important, how we can use movement to change the pace and energy of a lesson, how to make sure that movement is not just movement, that there's also language learning integrated with that, and finally, how to extend your classes beyond the classroom and into the whole school. Enjoy the episode. So Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Hey. Uh, so to start off with, why is movement important? Because I, I must admit, it's something that I try to include in every lesson I do, whether it's teaching kids or adults or even doing training for teachers. So for you, what? why is it important? I think it's important for a few reasons. I think first is a lot of a lot of parents and students sign up for courses at learning centers because they want something that's more interactive and fun. Um, I think that's one reason. I don't necessarily think that's the most important. I think with young learners, they have a lot of energy as well. Um, and sitting and listening to a teacher for an hour is not a realistic expectation. I think they do need to get up and move around to work off some energy. I think if you just watch what students do when they're unsupervised, so for example, if you teach kids and there's a break in the middle of the class, watch kids playing when they're not being supervised by a teacher, they're probably usually running around. So I think if you force them to sit down, you're kind of going against the natural flow mm. of what they want to be doing. And I don't think that means you mean to get the kids running around all the time, but I think you need to get them at least doing what they would naturally do some of the time. When you can see them in, in classes with, with young learners especially, you can see their legs start to shake. Like at that point, like they can't they can't really focus on learning, right? They're just focusing on staying in their seat and not running around. That's what they're focused on. They can't really focus on whatever it is the teacher's talking about. Again, I don't think that's necessarily the most important reason. <laughs> I think the most important reason to have movement in classes is because as you're physically doing something, it does help people to learn and remember things more strongly. You're building up more connections uh, in your in your brain, like whenever you're learning new words and linking it to movements and and that stuff can actually help people to learn more. Absolutely. So the the one other reason I would add is apparently if you are sitting for a long time, the blood flow to your brain is lower than it is if you're standing up and moving around. So the more to an extent, I guess you can get students standing up and moving around the more blood's going to be in their brain and thus the easier it is going to be for them to concentrate and learn. Actually, I have a question. So you were saying earlier that you think it's important for young learners and adult students. Why do you think it's important for adults? Is it as important for adults as it is for young I, learners? I guess it's not. I would say for adults, I don't think all hell is going to break loose if you force them to sit down for an hour. But I found in general, if you can build some movement in say halfway through the class that really helps to break up the lesson. I think it's a bit more variety. I think it helps to shift the focus. And I also think you can kind of match the phases of the lesson to people's attention spans. So for adults, maybe they can pay attention for like 20 minutes, half an hour. But if you have them sat down for a whole hour, that's a, that's a long time. What is it? I, I don't remember the specifics about it, but I know like TED Talks 
are limited to 13 or 17 minutes, oh. which is like the average adult length for their attention span. And so like you can only focus on something really well for 13 or 17 minutes, somewhere in there. Absolutely. And I think another aspect of this is you can just sort of change the focus of the classroom. So for like a gallery walk or something, you're changing the focus of the classroom away from the front of the lesson where students are maybe looking at you to, oh, all of a sudden I'm standing up and looking at things on the walls. And I think that makes a a huge difference to people's ability to pay attention. It's not just that we moved, but it's also like, oh, I'm now looking at a different part of Mm. the, the classroom. I think that makes a difference. And for kids, I think a great way of doing that is breaking up your classroom into different areas. So maybe you have all the kids, this is for, say, kindergarten students. You maybe have all the kids sitting on chairs, say, when you're presenting new language. But when you come to sing a song, maybe you get everyone to stand up and make a circle in the middle of the room. And then maybe if we're looking at a storybook, we're going to get everyone to sit down in a circle in a different place in the classroom. Yeah, even on the ground, right? Absolutely. Cross-legged. And it just changes the focus of, of the lesson. I think that's another nice way of building in that movement, but it's also helping to change the focus, which helps people pay attention, I think. I remember when I was a new teacher, like I didn't have much experience, and this guy who probably taught one or two years uh, was giving me advice and I looked at him at that point. It's like, wow, he's taught for one or two years. He's a real expert. But he did give me some good advice in saying, like, he looked at it like, if you ever had a reading activity, right after that, he would need to have, like, an up activity where they're up and moving around and physically involved with it. Then he could go back down. And so it's like, it's like a chart going up and down and up and down. So he just tried to rotate his activities to, like, introduce language. Then you have an up activity where they're moving around and doing a mingle. Then reading time where they all sit down in a circle quietly. That reminds me of how movies are, right? You would never get a movie where it's just, like, non-stop action sequences, mm. right? You'll get, especially towards the end of the movie, you might have an action movie, say, You'll have like a big fight or something and then it'll look like the movie's over and it'll be calm again for another few minutes and then you'll get another action sequence and then actually everything is okay now and then the energy level gets brought back down. So yeah, it's not always super exciting and high energy and it's not always low energy. You're kind of moving between the two. So I guess that's another nice thing about movement. It's a way of increasing the energy in the class. And I'm not saying, like going back to that reading activity, I think since what that teacher was saying going up and down Mm. moments i don't think you necessarily look at the reading activity as a down thing that people have to get through you can work in some engagement there as well and some movement into that as well but i think generally that advice is really strong because it's still a down type activity and you might have them acting out certain parts of a story or like you know doing certain motions along with the story as you're reading it especially in stories with lots of repetition in it there might be some actions that you incorporate but it's not quite as physically active as let's say like a mingle activity or or a survey activity which is coming up next i do think though it's important not just to have movement like now we're going to dance now we're focusing on english now we're going to run Now we're going to focus on English again. I think it's important that you incorporate that movement into the English activities, or you incorporate English into the movement activities somehow. Such a good point. And and some ways of doing that, even at low levels, just things like everyone who's wearing black shoes 
change seats mm. or everyone with glasses like swim around uh, the circle and mm. come back and sit down yeah it's a movement english activity versus a, a slower language focus activity so we mentioned a couple of activities there like uh, gallery walk and, and survey so do you want to start off by telling us what's a gallery walk so a gallery walk is can be done in a few different ways but basically you just put different stations up on the wall so you might write instructions for one thing and put it on the northeast wall and then another station at the southeast wall with a different set of instructions. Basically, you create this kind of atmosphere where people have to rotate through the different stations. It could be different activities at different stations or it could be different prompts for the same activity, but it's setting up the room on the walls and getting students to go through the classroom kind of like it's an art gallery. Absolutely. So some other things I've seen related to that you could have different writing prompts in different areas. So maybe you've got a topic for the class and you have to write down all the adjectives you know about this topic, all the nouns you know about this topic or in a different place. You might have different readings in different places around the classroom. You have to go around, read the different things. It might be paragraphs that are out of order. Read them all and then come back and guess what the, the reading was about. Mm. But you're basically just taking something that you probably could do sitting down and cutting it up somehow and then putting it around the classroom. Yeah. So I think that's a great example of an activity where the sort of movement's really integrated in there. Another one I like for that is doing surveys and mingle activities. So things like find someone who or people bingo where students need to ask questions to other people in the class. And obviously the easiest way to do that is to get everyone to stand up and talk to as many different people as possible. So for find someone who the adult versions for this are often things like, you know, speaks more than two languages or has been to more than 10 countries. But for kids, it could just be things like find someone who likes math or find someone who has a pet mm. or find someone who has the most brothers and sisters in your class. That's a nice one as well, where the students can't really do that sitting down. You have to talk to multiple people. So I feel any kind of activity like that, where students need to talk to multiple people in the same class is going to be good for integrating movement. Do you have any other favorite activities, Matt, that involve a lot of movement? Well, I think the simplest one, and, and, and there's a lot of different uses for it, is miming. You can do it where, uh, you know, student A is gets a word, they have to mime it, and student B needs to guess what it is. What are some other ways you can do miming? Yeah, I guess like Simon Says is another kind of similar thing to that, where you're getting people to mime something. But in your example, the gap is you're trying to get someone to guess the word. Mm. Here it's like the mime is the response, I guess, instead of the prompt. Or in a story, as you're reading a story, right? And like you can talk about the wind blowing or something, and you get the students to wave their arms around like the wind, or a bear comes in, and you you get them miming a bear. Like and that's to, miming to, like to, a bear right now. <laughs> yeah, it's not great for a podcast, I suppose. <laughs> um, no, that's a, that's a really good one for the story. Like you, you could say, oh, every time you hear this word, mm. do this action, and then it becomes something like a the students responding to, to what the teacher is reading out. Because I feel that's one of the difficulties sometimes with reading stories is that the students can be quite passive and maybe get bored, but then you're giving them kind of like a, a listening task while you're reading out the story. And I feel if you do read the same stories to your students again and again, which I think you should do, 
almost like the first stage of participation is going to be students joining in in the actions. And then much later on, I guess, they'll be able to join in with the actual words. Mm. So I think another nice thing about having gestures to go along, for example, with vocabulary words, is that they can be a nice prompt for teachers. So when you're trying to get students to remember a word, if you already have a little gesture that goes along, say with cat, right? Maybe you've got like cat ears, which is like your hands up by the side of your head and you're, you're flapping them up and down. And now he's flapping <laughs> his ears up and down. <laughs> if a student's struggling to remember the word, then doing the gesture, I think, is a really good prompt to help them recall that. So I think those can be useful for helping students remember, as in like the memorization process. But I think it can also be good for retrieval, for like prompting students to say something as well. Mm. So earlier on, we talked a little bit about using different places in the classroom. But I think one thing I've done occasionally, and we mentioned at the start, is using different places outside the classroom. Mm. Most classes are going to take place in a classroom that's in a school. I think there's often a lot of different things that you can use within a school to help students learn things as well. I mean, just some examples or ideas I've done before a role play at the front desk of the school. And my role play was getting some of the students to pretend to be staff at the school and other students pretending to be parents, which they loved, and asking for directions mm. to the different classrooms. Or you could take, for example, let's say we're, I don't know, learning colours. You could take the students just on a walk around the school and try and point to some different colours that you see in different places around the school. Or another one related to the rooms is, let's walk around the school and what are all the different rooms that we can see in the school? This takes a bit of planning, but you mentioned surveys earlier. You could incorporate different people, like maybe the cleaner or the person working at the front desk, and you could include those people on the survey. Like, you'd have to ask them permission first and tell them, like, you might have 20 students coming to <laughs> ask you questions at this time, but it can make it a lot more memorable. Absolutely. Or sometimes you might have parents outside the mm. classroom somewhere. They can be good people to survey as well. I did one with uh, adults one time. We were talking about clothes, and I had everybody go out with their cameras around the center and find the most fashionable person when they came back and described in as flowery language as possible, why this person was so fashionable and how they got their look and stuff like that. No one tried to sue you for taking photos of them. In the... uh, maybe, <laughs> not that I know of. got away with it that way. One more time, everyone. That was Matt Courtois. If you enjoyed the conversation, you might also enjoy my book, Inside Online Language Teaching, conversations about the future which became the present. It's now available on Amazon. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.